This podcast is brought to you by Friendly City Books, Columbus, Mississippi's independent bookstore. Learn more at FriendlyCityBooks.com. Welcome to the Friendly City Books podcast. Uh, My name is Emily, and I'm the founder of Friendly City Books, and I'm really excited to be sitting down today with Patrick Dean. Hi, Patrick. Hello there. Great to be here. (laughs) Thanks for coming. Uh, Patrick drove into Columbus in this very cool van. (laughs) Uh, it, It is like hashtag van life um, with this very cool uh, artistic wrap around it that looks like if Keith Haring did landscapes of topographical maps. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly as a bookstore owner. (laughs) Um, But Patrick came to us here in Columbus uh, to promote his new book, which is called Nature's Messenger, Mark Catesby and His Adventures in a New World. So uh, we're excited to have Patrick here because we love to support and promote Mississippi writers. And Patrick Dean is a Mississippian himself. Patrick, what is your background and connection to Mississippi? So I moved to, and thanks for having me here, first of all. Great to be in Columbus, wonderful bookstore. And uh, thanks so much. Um, Yeah, I moved to Mississippi when I was six. My dad actually worked at the Bay St. Louis NASA uh, facility. Wait, you're kidding. No, my, my dad was a rocket scientist. I'm from Bay St. Louis. That's where I grew up. Sorry, this didn't come up in our like pre-recording interview. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Bay St. Louis. That's, that's tremendous. That's tremendous. So, so yeah, he worked at Stennis Space in, Center. We lived in Picayune for a few years <gasps> while Dad uh, did his rocket scientist thing down there. Yeah, for those of you who aren't from Mississippi, that is pretty country. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we moved to Cleveland, where Dad uh, taught was a math professor at Delta State for a while. Uh, so I grew up, and I consider myself a Delta boy. I grew up in, in Cleveland and then Leland, graduated from Leland High School, um, went to Delta State for a year, and then Ole Miss. Uh, graduated from Ole Miss by the skin of my teeth. Um, and then literally, like, academic probation. I had a really good time at Ole Miss. <laughs> Read Were a lot you... of books, though, but the librarian loved me. Like, every semester, I would turn this overdue stack, a huge overstack overdue stack of books and she would forgive the fines. Oh, that's nice. So I was one of those busy having an education rather than, you know, um, making good grades. I was going to um, say, were you in a frat or something <laughs> during all this I was, time? I was, I was doing that kind of thing too. Yeah. <laughs> I was also a national world affairs columnist for the daily Mississippian. Oh, that's a, a yeah. fun title for a college student. <laughs> <laughs> and a two-time winner of the Ole Miss Poetry Contest. Hey, there so, you go. Yeah, so the literary thing was going on back then. Um, moved to Jackson, um, uh, waited tables, worked in politics, worked at Lemuria Bookstore for a year, yep. which was like my, like my most best credential in my life as far as I'm concerned. All right. We love them. So uh, yeah, John, if you're listening, <laughs> thanks for, you know, laying the groundwork for us. That's right. Hey, John Evans, what's up? Um, and then, um, went off to DC for a while, came back to Mississippi, met my wife, Susan. We were teaching at Lanier high school in Jackson, um, took her back to the Delta. We taught at Greenville high school, T.L. Weston high school. Um, and then, I just 
couldn't take any more uh, Mississippi heat and humidity. I couldn't mountain bike. The one time I tried to mountain bike at the Delta, I got stuck in the mud and had to hike home. I thought you were going to say you couldn't mountain bike in Mississippi because we have no mountains. <laughs> well, there's that too. Um, so I told Susan I wanted to live. I wanted to live in a small southern college town where I could do the outdoor thing. Um, hence, Swanee, where we moved in 1999. We've been on the mountain ever since. Wow. So that's the story. But we come back all the time. We come to Jackson. We get, you know, do all the re- so many good restaurants in Jackson. So we do that and, and hang out with our friends and go down to uh, Loosedale, where I have a sister-in-law, two nephews and their families, um, another niece in Fairhope, Alabama. So we're like South Mississippi people now. Yes. So. Yeah. 228. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, is kind of weird because my dad was born in Agricola, which is a suburb of Loosedale. At Lucille has suburbs? It has at least one. Agricola. <laughs> Agricola, the Latin word for farmer. How they knew that down there, I have no idea, but yeah. Well, and another fun like tidbit is, you know, picayune comes from the French word for a small thing. Like something right. like that doesn't really matter is kind exactly. of the, the translation. Yeah. Know, it's, like, it's like being from the town of Trivium, basically. Yes. <laughs> uh, oh, well, that's great. Um so, okay, you worked at Lemuria, you did some politics, you've moved to Tennessee. How did you end up becoming an author? Well, Swanee is a very literary place. Um, uh, there Now the School of Letters is there. Um, lots, of, lots of good writers and writer-adjacent stuff going on there. Kevin Wilson has a yeah. Swanee connection. Um, John Jeremiah Sullivan has a Swanee connection. Um, David Haskell another, you know, wonderful writer with a Swanee connection. So there's a lot of that sort of in the air. And um, when I, so I, before I got involved with this nonprofit that I work for now, um, I taught at St. Andrew Swanee School, which is a a six six through 12 Episcopal school. I taught English and history and ran the outdoor program for a while. And uh, while doing that, I decided I wanted to get a master's degree. So I got a master's in theology from the um, School of Theology at the University of the South. And uh, at some point, so back up a second, when I worked at Lemuria, I, I, for some reason I was, I was obsessed with two places, Alaska and Africa. And I was reading all these books about those two places. And one of the books I picked up about Alaska was 10,000 Miles with a Dog Sled by this guy named Hudson Stuck. Um, and read it and loved it and kept it. I used that very same copy of the book when I was working on the Hudson Stuck book. And then I, we moved up to the mountain to Swanee. We started going to All Saints Episcopal uh, Church, All Saints Chapel, which is the school chapel. And it looks like a cathedral. It's a beautiful church. And uh, so halfway along the nave on the right is this big plaque to Hudson Stuck from his fraternity brothers, the Deltas. Behind the high altar is a statue of him. He's like up there with all the saints and everything. Oh, wow. There's this guy dressed in Arctic garb with a sled dog jumping up on him. And that's Hudson Stuck. And so at some point I put together that that Hudson Stuck was the same guy who wrote the book that I bought, you know, all those years ago. Oh, wow. And started learning more about, you know, sort of checking in on his life and decided to write my master's thesis on Stuck when I graduated in 2006 with my master's degree. So that was the beginning. And then I got, I became part of a writer's group in Swanee with some really good writers and editors. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm actually picturing right now, like St. Francis Assisi wearing a parka <laughs> inside this cathedral. This is the image I'm getting. <laughs> um, yeah. So he's uh, the, the statue. There's a photo of him in the book in, in um, a window to heaven. Um, so from there, uh, it just sort of developed as a book idea. 
And um, there's a wonderful writer named Kim Cross who came to Swanee to to a retreat. There was a retreat called Rivendell um, that I was connected with for a while. And our, our writers group actually met at Rivendell. And she came there to do some work. And I met her and had lunch. And we rode by. She's a cyclist. She's a badass mountain biker. Can I say badass? Sure. Um, and we rode together. And we stayed connected. And she told me about this wonderful um, book proposal writing workshop that was out in Texas at, in Archer City, Texas, which is where, um, oh gosh, oh gosh, um, the Texas writer who, who, oh gosh. Wait, Larry, Larry McMurtry? Thank you, thank you, Larry McMurtry. <laughs> Sorry, just pulled that out of the air. <laughs> this is his hometown, Archer City, and uh, there was a writer's um, sort of place there. And so in July of 2017, I went out to Archer City in July where it's even hotter than Mississippi. No. <laughs> and had this, did this wonderful workshop um, with a great guy named Glenn Stout, who's written literally like 100 books. He edits the Best American Sports Writing Series. Cool. Um, was a wonderful mentor. And so put together a book proposal for the Stuck, Hudson Stuck book and found an agent, found a publisher and all that kind of stuff. And in 2021, March of 2021, the first book of Window to Heaven came out. And it was still the the epidemic, so we did almost no publicity. There were no visits to Columbus to do book chats and all that sort of thing. Yeah, so. we were still in a virtual world then. Yeah. But we did get to meet last year at the Mississippi Book Festival in Jackson. So that was a real treat. We had a lot of authors come by and introduce themselves. And Patrick came up and told me about his connection to Mississippi and his book. And we kind of became correspondents then. That was such a joy to do that. First, my first time ever at doing the book festival, actually. And so I was on a panel. Ellen was, was wonderful, had me on a panel. And um, you had my book in your tent. At the festival, which was sweet because, you know, during the little signing thing afterwards, someone said they that Lemuria was sold out. And I said, well, go see Friendly City. They've got my book. And yeah. she did and bought a book from y'all. And and we did sell out of your book there. <laughs> and I remember this because I remember you signed each of them with a little mountain, with a little mountain man climbing the mountain. <laughs> and I thought it was so great. And I wanted to have extras for the store, but we sold them all at the book festival. And we can't be mad about that. So, <laughs> um. Yeah, so that's right. I did the mountain with an arrow, sort of to sort of inspire people. That's the, the whole thing is like you know, climb your own mountain, whatever that is. So, um, and then so and then and then um, nature's messenger comes out. And I think, well, you know, I've got to draw something. And those when I saw them, what am I going to do? Um, I wanted to draw up. So woodpeckers are my, especially pileated woodpeckers are my spirit animal. I mean, I just love they're they're just so wacky. They're so you know they're unafraid to be themselves and they're you know bold and um they make that wonderful jungle noise as they're flying through the woods and uh i really wanted to draw a pileated woodpecker but it didn't it just didn't work it, it they're hard to do and it's hard to make it look exactly like a and not just like a blue jay or anything else true true so, yeah um, especially with no color because they're like black and white and red so um Instead, I draw a sailboat, which I figure you oh, know, that makes sense. Yeah, the you know the exploration side of Catesby and all that. So now you get a, a sailboat with an arrow. So like, go, go explore. Go that explore. makes sense. Well, when you're like climb your own mountain, and yes, like, um, well, I guess 
sail, you know, new seas, explore new seas or something. Exactly. exactly. Um, so now whatever I write for the next book, it's got to have a good little, you know, icon drawing. Yeah, a little too. cartoon to go with it. <laughs> a little avatar, I guess. Um, you know, speaking of the woodpecker, I remember looking in the, the plates of images in the middle of the book. There is an image of a woodpecker of a species that is actually now extinct. Is that right? So that depends. Um, oh, are. yeah, because there was a recent sighting. <laughs> and by recent, I mean like the 1980s, right? <laughs> There's a big controversy about it. And let me just say right here, right now, that I am a believer. I think that the ivory-billed woodpecker is not extinct. Having grown up in the Mississippi Delta and knowing what those swamps are like, I believe that in Louisiana, you cannot say for certainty that there is not an ivory-billed woodpecker somewhere in the swamps of Louisiana. Yeah. I would love to believe it. <laughs> like the optimist in me is going to say they're still here. Absolutely. So yeah, so there are three sort of, it's a it's a melancholy plate in in the book because there are three. You've got your passenger passenger pigeon, the Carolina parakeet, both both of whom are certainly definitely extinct. Mm. And then the ivory bill um like like I say, they're they're there are scientists, biologists, wildlife biologists today who say that they think they're still alive. They're still out there. So I, I will be um, – that's my story and I'm sticking to it until somebody tells me otherwise. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> um, and then on the cover of the book, are these illustrations – from Mark Catesby? Those are all, that's all a collage of Catesby art. Yeah, because yes. I noticed the frog. And then when I was in the middle of the book, I was like, oh, wait, this is the same frog. <laughs> so that's really neat. Yeah, one of the measures of respect that he, is, he has been given by um, entomologists and botanists and zoologists is having animals named after him. And the, the American bullfrog is named uh, Lithobates Catesbyana, named after Catesby. So that's so cool. Yeah. I love that. So yep. he will live on That's right. as long as the bullfrog does, <laughs> which hopefully will be forever. We hope. We hope. So how did you fall into um, Mark Catesby's story and, you know, discover him? Yeah, it's it, it goes back a ways, too. In the 1990s, um, my wife and I were living in the Delta. That's when we were teaching at Greenville High and all that. And uh, I was deeply off into Wendell Berry and... Um, you know, nature of that sort. And I was reading um, 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 William Bartram, who was famous for his travels through the Southeast in the 1770s. And, you know, we were reading a lot of garden magazines. We were, you know, we were like doing the garden, raising vegetables and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we were, we read this, this sort of glossy, fancy magazine called Garden Design. And, um, in the front of one of those magazines, there was a little brief little blurb, front of front of the magazine blurb about, it must have been an exhibit of Mark Catesby's paintings. And I knew of Audubon, of course, and I knew of Bartram. And, and so I'd been, I was in that groove of naturalists, you know, early naturalists, especially in the South. And uh, I'd never heard of Mark Catesby. And so I went looking for more information. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was the day before the internet, basically. And mm -hmm. so... There was nothing. I could find nothing at all. And so I just shrugged my shoulders and went on. And then 2021, Window to Heaven is out. We're starting to do publicity and stuff. I hadn't even had the conversation with myself about whether I was ready to write another book, much less looking for a subject. And just literally popped into my head one day. It's like, oh, I remember reading about that Catesby guy. I wonder if there's a, you know, wonder if he could be a good subject for a biography. And we were off and running from there. So 
suggested it, did a little digging around, suggested it to my editor and my agent, and they liked it. So we were off, off and running. Well, I love um, biographies that tell stories of people who might have otherwise been lost to history. And, you know, this is an interesting case because he was before Darwin, before Audubon. He was a contemporary of some of the biggest names in science. And one that really stood out to me is he actually came a little bit before Carl Linnaeus. And I'm still not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. But yeah, so Linnaeus uh, invented the taxonomy that we use today to group and categorize and name species of you know, all living beings. And I remember learning about him as a little girl. As a side note, um, I remember going to the New Orleans Museum of Art for an exhibit on Claude Monet when I was probably seven or eight years old. And there was a book in the gift shop about a little girl who loved Monet named Linnea. And she was named in honor of Carl Linnaeus. And so there's another book about her learning about her namesake. So as a little girl, I got really into Linnaeus. <laughs> so when I saw this, I was like, wow, like you could actually argue that like Linnaeus was influenced by Mark Catesby and they would have come across each other through their network of intellectuals. That's right. I mean, we don't know that they ever met, but they did correspond. Linnaeus did come to London during the time when Catesby was alive. So there was a lot of overlap. Um, and yes, Linnaeus used Catesby's um, research and his writing, his natural history, um, as a basis for what he was doing. He was, um, he was um, a bit of an egotist, and so he didn't give Catesby a whole lot of credit for what he did. Um, and the practice was, especially in Linnaeus's case, he would, um, like he took, Catesby had, would, would give like the Pileated Woodpecker or the Ivory Bill. He'd give it like three or four names, three or four Latin names. And then uh, Linnaeus would like tweak that into his two name system and give Catesby no credit at all. It's like he's calling it the blankety blank and, you know, and that's it. And so, but he did definitely take, take uh, some of Catesby's work and sort of mold it into what Linnaeus did. Yeah. Well, and one thing that's also so interesting about this book um, that contextualizes it is this uh, network of intellectual thought that's going on at this point that really kind of like grounds the um, the first half of the book. And I was kind of joking about this earlier as this like list of C's, correspondence, coffee houses, and cabinets of curiosities. <laughs> so correspondence. So there's this letter network. Right. And what was that called again? The Republic of Letters. That's the Republic of Letters. Yes. I remember it having this very like stately name. Yes. The <laughs> Republic of Letters. It was a, that was a, it began in the Renaissance, that term did. And um, it was, it was used to refer to this, this high level, really intellectual um, n network from, you know, of letters, because that's the only way they could communicate. And so... Uh, it was the first, you know, it was the internet of the day to to be you know, cliched about it. And uh, you would have, you know, Italians writing to Dutchmen, writing to Frenchmen, writing to Englishmen. And, and uh, um, Latin was the lingua, it's kind of stupid to say Latin was the lingua franca because that's sort of, you know. And, yeah, oxymoronic <laughs> in a way. Oxymoron yeah. there, but, but Latin was the common language they used to to communicate with each other, at least, you know, up until the 1700s or so. Uh, even in 
even then to some extent. But yeah, I mean, those that's how discoveries got shared. That's how knowledge was 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 uh, circulated among the, the learned men and very occasionally women of the time. Now, and speaking of time frame, since you just mentioned this, I think it's important to note to kind of ground this in the time. Um, that Mark Catesby was born in 1683, died in 1749. So, yeah, we're talking early 18th century here. Right, right. Um, so the other part that was kind of the the um, the, the next level beyond the correspondence network was the coffeehouse network. And I mean, I feel like there could probably be a whole book just about this coffeehouse network in London. And ironically, to kind of set the stage, I just finished reading or listening to an audiobook called The Last Days of the Morisaki Bookshop, which is uh, set in a real neighborhood in Tokyo that has the, like, the highest density of bookstores in the world. And there's like 200 bookstores all in the same neighborhood. And they're almost all used bookstores. And I actually started to picture this when I was picturing this um, coffee house culture in London, because it sounds like you could like, you know, if you threw a rock down the street, you would hit a coffee house. And then each coffee house down the street had a different clientele that was gathering there for a specific purpose. Absolutely. So you had, you know, the, the, um, the Royal society had its own coffee house, the, um, the trades, the various businesses had their own. The most famous, of course, being the insurance, the marine insurance, which started meeting at Lloyd's Coffee House, which became Lloyd's of London. Um, and, you know, botanists had their own, too. I mean, we talk about that in the uh, the Temple Coffee House, which was uh, where the, all the, the botanists hung out to, to do their thing. Um, there was one, there was a uh, Carolina Coffee House. There was a Virginia Coffee House. There was... Yeah, you could you could pick and choose. It was really uh, that sort of very specialized sort of thing. I wonder if there were any that were just like omnibus, like you know, what do you want? Just yeah, in the coffee house. Because you know, it's funny. I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, what is that like today? And I was like, well, you know, in downtown Columbus, we have one coffee shop, so I guess it is <laughs> an omnibus coffee shop, you know, or like the right. the beer garden that we're gonna go to for our um, event later. Yeah, like that's the place to go, the place. Right, right, um, right. But, you know, as you're describing these coffee shops, like the Carolina coffee shop and the Virginia coffee shop, you know, what popped into my head is we were talking earlier about how we both lived in D.C. for a while, both had careers in and around Capitol Hill. And in D.C., there is this culture of bars for different universities. So if you went to a specific university, there was generally an alumni association chapter in D.C. And there was you kind of knew where to go for like game day Saturday, where to go watch the college football game with your fellow alumni. Right. So maybe right. I guess we do still have something like that. Sure. The North Carolina bar and the Duke bar and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I know. Right. I remember um, when I was living in D.C., Ole Miss and Mississippi State actually had the same gathering location. Yeah, which to <laughs> someone from Mississippi sounds insane, but right. yeah, but, yeah. The important thing is you're both Mississippi, I guess. Yeah, more important than the rivalry. So. But and, yeah, it was a fascinating. The the coffee houses are these fascinating centers of 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 inf again of information. You know, it's like you know brought out of the the network of correspondence and and made tangible right there in London. And so, um, they were the social, cultural, and intellectual centers of London at that point in time. And you could you could learn a lot. They were called uh, penny universities because you know that's what it cost to walk in and buy a plate of coffee 
and uh, the newspapers were there, and, and people were plugged into what was going on. So it was a it was a fascinating time in that way. Yeah, I love that because I was thinking too of the bookstore like as our own. Uh, Penny University with a little bit of inflation, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And then uh, the other piece of context that I thought was so funny and interesting was the Cabinet of Curiosities. Yes, yes. Like the original private museums, I guess. Perfect. I mean, yeah, there were no there were no public museums at that point. It started out with um, wealthy nobles who would who had an interest in. Um, you know, art or whatever, and they would have their collections and they would, you know, have friends in to see them. And, um, and from there, you know, we, now we have the scientific revolution going on and people are, it's becoming fashionable to have fossils and minerals and, uh, you know, curiosity, things like, um, you know, embryos of, of two-handed chickens and stuff like that. And so, you know, you would have all of these weird things that you could show to people who, uh, to came by to come you know who came by your house and yeah so that's wild you know one thing I love so much about it is um so I've been accused of being uh, quote unquote a hoarder a pack rat you know my mother thinks I need to you know throw more things away and I'm one of those per- people who ascribes like emotional value to like my my objects my objet and maybe that's why I own a bookstore um, but I. I have started to realize, oh, all these little trinkets that I've picked up on my travels that I have arranged, you know, around my living room. I have a cabinet of curiosities. Totally. totally. <laughs> I'm part of the virtuosi. <laughs> You're a Renaissance woman. That's the that's the situation. So yeah, so I love this because, you know, it's just so funny to see like, you know, the more things change, the more things they stay the same. You know, the correspondence networks and coffee houses of the past are like the, you know, Reddits and the Twitter universes of, of today. Um, when I used to, before my bookstore life, when I used to work in economics, we had hashtag econ Twitter, which was basically our coffee house for, sure. you know, economic issues. Absolutely. So anyway, so I, I just loved all of that, just like grounding in the history. And let's uh, let's also mention the um, the fact that pirates had their own networks too. Yeah, the, oh, the pirates had their own information networks. So how did this work? <laughs> well, as they, as they came into a port, they know they knew where to go to find out where you know people um, which which bars there were that you know the, all the pirates hung out there and they shared information about you know when the British ship was going to come through and, and crack some heads and when the Spanish, you know, the, the big fat Spanish laden galleon laden with riches was cruising through, you know, for a target for, uh, you know, um, piracy. Yeah. So they had their own sort of Caribbean wide network of information flowing just like coffee houses in the Republic of Letters. And so this also actually ends up kind of playing into the story of, you know, Mark Caseby. So, you know, born in England, like in the countryside, travels to the New World a couple of times. Um, and there's a really a real issue with pirates stalking the coast of, um, you know, then early America and the um, Caribbean. And one of Mark Catesby's predecessors found themselves on the receiving end of a pirate attack, right? So, yeah, well, several of the naturalists sort of had their their shipments of things over to England disrupted by piracy. Um, he writes in a letter about how you know, part of his 
I'm sending you 27 trees and and I think the other 30 I sent you by the other ship may have been lost to piracy, but but I'm doing what I can. And um, and Blackbeard had blockaded Charleston just a few years before Catesby arrived. Um, one of the things I, I learned, I really learned this while I was doing the research for the book, was this the golden age of piracy, the one we think of when we think of, you know, the 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 totems of pirates, you know, the the skull and crossbones and Blackbeard and all that was literally a decade from 1716 to 1726. That's it. All that happened within that time frame. Um, But, you know, they were such a, um, uh, I don't know, they were just, uh, you know, arresting, galvanizing sort of um, uh, social movement, I guess you would almost call it, because they were very democratic at sea. Um, The captain was elected and he could be deposed at any time by the crew. Um, the spoils were divided evenly. The captain got a double share, but they, they separated out by shares and did it that way. Um, so it was a very fascinating time, but yeah, 17, uh, by 1726, the British, um, Royal Navy was like, yeah, no more of this. We're going to shut this down. And they brutally shut it down. Yeah. So, but it was a fascinating time and it was only one of the many sort of impediments to, um, botanical specimens like Hatesby's getting back over to England from, from the Americas. Yeah. And so, okay, let's talk about this in a little more detail because I also thought this was really interesting. So Mark Catesby basically goes around to rich people to say, will you sponsor my trip to America? And they're like, sure, here's some money. Send us some stuff back for our cabinets of curiosities. So um, he's over, I mean, his first trip, he's he's in the um, the Carolinas in, um, for like seven years, right? Virginia. Or Virginia, thank you. Um, so he's his way of basically repaying his the money that has been given to him to do this trip is to send his quote they were called subscribers then which i thought was so interesting that we called that a subscription <laughs> right um but he basically had to return something to his investors and he would return these specimens so what was this like well so just to correct you a little bit the okay. first he did two trips to the new world the first one in 1712 to 1719 and he went with his sister and her family, she she had married um, a physician named William Cock, who was ended up being a big deal in Virginia and Williamsburg. And so he went over with her, and he was pretty much a free agent for the first the first trip over. Um, he did some exploring around, and he took some notes, and he made some paintings, and he did have already have connections back in England, and he did send some plants and some plantings and some seeds and some specimens back over there. But it wasn't a quid pro quo. It was just he was basically establishing himself as a botanist, as an artist. And then um, by the time he gets back in 1719, he's made a reputation. His people are like ooing and eyeing over his art, his paintings of plants and animals, um, and his ability to to gather these these plantings and things. And so when they're looking, they're looking for somebody. I think you might have been thinking of John Lawson, who was killed by um, Native Americans. By the Tuscarora in in seventeen ten, I think. Um, but he was a naturalist. He was exploring South Carolina and was had already written one book um, and was going to write another about the wildlife of, of South Carolina. And so they were looking for someone to sort of finish his job. And then they said, "Well, this you know this Casey guy obviously has talent and he wants to go back." And so that's when they pooled their resources and funded and. and and were the patrons for his second trip in 1722 to South Carolina to Charleston. And so, yes, that was 
quid pro quo. He was part of his work was to send back plants to um, to the the highbrow um, botanical enthusiasts in London. Yeah. Uh, another thing that just really shocked me that I guess had not occurred to me before I was reading this is um, when Catesby and his contemporaries would come to, um, you know, cross the ocean on these expeditions, they may have in many cases been riding on the same ships as slaves. And that never occurred to me before, because I guess the way that we are taught American history, I thought a slave ship was like just slaves, like would not have had other cargo, much less passengers who are there like of their own accord who are going, you know, because they're, um, they're going to start a new life in America or they're, um, you know, come, going and coming back. That just really blew my mind to think that you could be walking on the same boards of a ship that is carrying slaves. Right. Yeah, that's, that's true. And it, it struck me really for the first time too, as I was writing the book. But if you think about the triangular trade that we heard about, you know, two of the three legs are without slaves, without enslaved people. So they take, um, uh, they take raw materials from the new world to England. Um, they take um, finished things, you know, um, manufactured goods to um, Africa. And then with that, they purchase uh, humans to, to carry across. So two of the three legs are without Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, you know, at least at this, at this time, early 1700s, we're talking about most of the journeys across were involved with the slave trade. So it's just a matter of, of statistics, yeah. probabilities that, that they would be, that some of Catesby's specimens were sent back by ships that had carried slaves over to America. And, um, another interesting part to this is that the, the doctors on slave vessels were typically the most educated person, people on the ships and people like the Royal society would lean on them to explore around and collect specimens and do research for, for scholarship, you know, for the, for knowledge. So you had, you had, again, here's you had the coupling of the slave trade and the intellectual exploration funded by the Royal Society and by others. So they kind of go together. You almost can't have one without the other in that in that society, in that time. Yeah. Definitely something to think about as we sit with this and, and learn this history and understand what's happening in this time and place. And one thing that is unique about Mark Catesby that stands out was his relationship with the enslaved people and indigenous people that he encountered. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, he's a one of the reasons he's such a fascinating character to, to write about is because in many ways he was a groundbreaking um, scientist. There are all these first connected with his book, which are really cool to to learn about. He's um, he was very good at um, uh, endearing himself to um, some of the high and mighty in the colonies. For example, he and when he went to the Bahamas in 1724, and uh, he was. He was uh, visiting with the governor of the Bahamas, who Caseby relates in his book, was uh, looking for these Chigo fleas on his feet, on the governor's feet. And apparently he found some because then they looked at them under a microscope. And this is the first mention of the use of a microscope in the New World ever. That's incredible. And, and Caseby was there. Um, another one, and, it, and this one pertains really to what you're talking about. 
he describes how they found at a place called Stono, and I think that might be North Carolina now, but in the Carolina colonies, um, mastodon teeth, the first mention of fossils in the New World by by Westerners, by Europeans. Wow. And he cites the enslaved Africans who were there on the scene because they knew what an elephant's tooth would look like, right? So that's how they suspected that these were actually fossilized elephant's teeth. And for a Western, for a European, for a British scientist naturalist to reference native knowledge and write it in a book and credit them, um, that was that was very unusual for the time. Um, and so it, it fit in with his his general outlook on the people he was dealing with. And we know for so he was also uh, he also spent a lot of time with the owners of the plantation homes, the Low Country of South Carolina, um, and uh, stayed with them and told them how to what trees to plant on their plantations and all that. But when they make the movie about Catesby's life, you know, the major motion picture about Catesby's life, I want to have this scene where he walks behind the mansion back to um, where the enslaved Africans lived because we know that he talked to them about what they were growing for food and for medicine as well. So um, it's just such a, it's a, you know, it's a very cinematic scene to think about, but, but important and, and also groundbreaking again. So. Um, yeah. He references a lot of the um, remedies Mm-hmm. And um, kind of like folk remedies and med- med- medicinal uses of the plants that he was encountering. That's right. So he ends up being the first, one of the first real ethnographers of of uh, the cultures that he runs into. It's it's fascinating how he tends to, and I say this in the book, that he's not only concerned with the plants and animals and those interrelationships um, in a in a really you know unique way, groundbreaking way, but also the relationships between because you know you had the you had the um, indigenous culture, you had the enslaved African culture and the European culture all just sort of intermingling right here in this place called South Carolina. And so he was very cognizant of that. And he, he paid a lot of attention to that as well as the, you know, again, the flora and fauna. Yeah. And, you know, we, we probably should, you know, have a disclaimer here that, you know, was he perfect? You know, was he walking around as this incredible, you know, uh, you know, enlightened, um, you know, person who, completely accepted non-white European people as his equals? Probably not. There are, there is evidence in some of his writing where he, you know, did disparage other people, but he also brought them in a lot more than other people with his means would have done. Is that fair to say? That is. I mean, he's, as you mentioned, he's before, he's before um, Darwin and those people. And the idea that, um, you know, even individual organisms, much less whole societies, could evolve was was you know a century in the future, and so his ideas in many ways were in many ways were were you know rigid. Rigid. So he called Native American savages, even as he described their virtues and talked about their their wisdom in very other ways, various other ways. Um, he considered them savages, and he could not credit the Spanish descriptions of. The, the Mesoamerican um, monuments, the Aztec and Maya and all that they had built and done. He just didn't, he, he sort of scoffed at it. He didn't believe, he thought the Spanish were just sort of puffing him up. Um, so, no, he was, he was very much a man of his time in spite of, 
in spite of these these instincts of his toward inclusion. So we don't want to anachronize him. We don't make, it, make him more advanced than he really was. Yeah. But then, you know, we can also recognize, you know, there's a, a, a part that he describes during his channels where, you know, he slept beside uh, indigenous people who were, um, you know, exploring with him. And in the, you know, the diary, he's like, it was perfectly fine, you know, and it's kind of weird, you know, to hear someone kind of, you know, I f- feel like they have to describe it in that way, you know, like. Right. Some of my best friends are. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah. But again, like time and place, he's doing things that other people are not doing. That's exactly right. And one of the ones that he's he's most recognized for now is that when, when he did his, when he was doing his natural history, when he was gathering specimens and when he was doing his art and putting together um, the illustrations that would become his natural history of the Carolinas, um, he would, in his art, he would place uh, a bird on the plant that whose seeds it ate. You know, he would, he he composed his art to to demonstrate the relationships between plants and animals, and so it was it was a thing that was not really being done, and it was ahead of its time for sure. He's, he's considered an early ecologist, a forerunner of um, people like. Um, Humboldt and people like that who saw the world in a more what we call an environmental, ecological way, and he would definitely is considered a forerunner of those people. Yeah, I mean, you know, at this time, like we're making scientific discoveries. You know, it's so funny because I think you know now it's you know twenty twenty three. Like, what else do we have to discover in our natural world? And I'm sure you could prove me wrong. You know, I know that like we still haven't figured out everything that's going on in the ocean, but it's crazy to think that at this time there are so many things that we take now as just principles that we're not that we're not yet set, you know, um, common knowledge or even had not been just quote unquote discovered at that point. Yeah. I mean, 1731, when Catesby, you know, began publishing his natural history, it came out in 10 parts between 1731 and 1747. You know, almost all of the British readers of his book had no idea what a pileated woodpecker looked like or, or a magnolia tree or an American bullfrog. Um, they just had never encountered it before in any form. And so he, he brought that. It was the first illustrated book of North American plants and animals. And it was a gorgeous, expensive, full-color um, extravaganza of a, of a publication. It cost 20 guineas, which was um, a year's salary for a British laborer at, the, at that point. So wow. it was the most expensive botanical book or zoological book, um, natural history book of its time. So it made an incredible impression. Yeah. I mean, even now a full color book would be really expensive. So yeah, back then I'm sure it was. And it's so funny also to think, wow, these people have never seen a magnolia before, you know, of course, sitting here in Mississippi having this conversation. (laughs) Yeah. I really enjoyed the little factoid about the magnolia being named for Pierre Magnol, which I did not know before. (laughs) Uh, And it was found in Martinique in, it was, uh, Sometime around 1700, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that was fun, a fun fact for a, a Mississippian to learn where Magnolia <laughs> comes from. Um, named by Charles Plumier. Yes. Um, so anything else about um, Mark Catesby in the book that you want to share? I think it's a, and it's, well, of course, you know, now that I've written about Catesby, I've become a real, you know, 
strong pat- uh, patron of Catesby and defender of the, you know, defender of the faith where Catesby is concerned. And like, yeah, he was better than Audubon, actually, you know. <laughs> John Muir's got nothing on this. That's right. That's right. You know, it's like I'm, I'm his, at his fierce advocate now that uh, people should know more about him and, and think less of Audubon just, you know, just because. Yeah, I heard Audubon was like, maybe not a great person. <laughs> no, he has his issues. Which is hard for me to accept because, again, growing up in Bay St. Louis, we're growing up very you know, very close to New Orleans. That was like the center of the universe to us. And the zoo in New Orleans is Audubon Park. That's and right. so we grew up revering this name. Um, but, yeah. Yep. And they all asked for you. That was, <laughs> That's, oh, that was my favorite Mardi Gras song. <laughs> well, okay. Um, so I'm, so not, I'm not here to talk about, I'm not here to run down Audubon. He had, he had his virtues. Um, but I really hope that my book will help people um, become more familiar with Catesby because he was a, um, a brilliant natural historian, uh, really good artist, and um, it's worth knowing about for sure. Yeah. And it's funny that he's known more as an artist today than he is as a naturalist. The... Um, Last year, they auto, they auctioned a second edition of his natural history for like two hundred forty thousand dollars. Oh auction. wow! So, um, he's he's valued in that way for sure. Yeah. So, uh, if any of your grandparents had old books, you might want to check the <laughs> attic to see if they had one of these. That's right. Well, that would be pretty. There are like hundred and fifty of them left, I think. So, I've been watching a lot of antiques roadshow lately. <laughs> um, you mentioned, you know, the movie version of this book. So who do you have in mind to play Mark Catesby? Have you thought about this? No, no one's ever asked me that question before. No. Okay. Well, we'll have to have our, our uh, audience chime in tonight. Sam Shepard would make a really good, maybe a younger Sam Shepard would make a really good Catesby. We have no images of Catesby. They're none existing. So we get to choose whoever we want to for it. So, you know, I'm somebody who looks kind of like Sam Shepard, kind of, you know, rough hewn and handsome that way. That would make a great... They'd make a great KHP. All right. Sam Shepard, if you're listening, we've got the role of a lifetime. Has Oscar written all over it? And then uh, we also would love to ask you, as we ask all of our um, authors who come on the podcast, what are you reading right now? Or what would you recommend? Or, you know, if someone gets into this book and says, I got to read more like this, where would you point them? Goodness. Um, You know, I love the not surprisingly, I love books that combine um, the outdoors and adventurous uh, exploration um, with a larger historical viewpoint. And um, there are lots of those right now. Um, I can't wait to get my hands on. And you've you grabbed me one, I'm happy to say. This brand new book called Brave the Wild River, which is about two women in the 1930s who go down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. They're botanists and they do groundbreaking botanical work in the Grand Canyon. Um and uh, I'm really jealous about about for the woman who wrote that book because I wish I had written it. But um, that's the kind of book I'm really looking forward to, and I think um, would be great for someone who read this book. Um, I've been reading on a lot of off off topic uh, stuff, novels and things like that these days. So um, well rounded. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. So you mentioned, you know, the book about the the women botanists who are working in the Grand Canyon. And one of my favorite parts of this book was about Maria Marion. Yes. And so I also wanted to shout her out because, you know, we were talking before about time and place contextualizing, you know, who could do what in these times. And she was a woman way ahead of her time who was doing similar um, naturalist exploration in Suriname. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes, she's. Uh, she's. Uh, I'm so glad I got to do some work on her and, and sort of give her a, a shout out in the book because 
Her work is her art is just beautiful. She's uh, Dutch uh, by by um, country, and she in 1698 she went to Suriname with her daughter, no men, just by herself with her daughter, which was pretty pretty unusual, and spent um, years there um, doing this doing her own research. And she was fascinated by insects specifically and um, the life cycles of insects. And so she did these glorious, really wildly colored. Um, illustrations a lot like Catesby's. We, I th- you know, it's pretty obvious Catesby was inspired by her. We know he, you know, saw her art. He refers to her in his book. Um, just wonderful, very dynamic sort of groupings of insects in various stages of their life cycles on one page, with lizards entwined around the stems of the plants and all that sort of thing. And uh, she's wonderful. She's definitely worth knowing about. Um, Kim Todd, I think, wrote a very good book about. Her, it's called metamorphosis. So that would be a great place to go if you were into that kind of thing. I do want to check that out. And, you know, one other book that I was thinking of as I was reading this is Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller, which is, yes. And uh, the, the subject was David Starr Jordan, who became, I think he was the first president of Stanford University, perhaps. And he rose to that, um, you know, that position because he worked in taxonomy and he, you know, quote unquote, discovered something like, I don't know, what was it like 25% of known fish species or something like that. Right. And then like Audubon turned out not a great person. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I guess I got off lucky with Catesby. He's on balance, a pretty decent guy, but yeah, yeah, you can, you can, find some really bad things under rocks if you start researching people's lives like that. Yeah, so. but it's it's such a, you know, interesting kind of um, creative nonfiction version of a biography, you know, and science writing and personal history. I, I really enjoy nonfiction books that kind of, you know, dabble in all these different disciplines. So that was an, an, one that I was thinking of. Someone like this, or if you liked that book, if you've already read Why Fish Don't Exist, this would be a great one to go to next. Absolutely. I think I think this this book holds a lot of um, promise for people who are into, who, you know, botany, plant art, you know, ornithology, um, bird art. I mean, you've got those you know, those, all those audiences, I think, could really find something they'd enjoy in this book. Yeah. Well, again, um, Patrick's new book is Nature's Messenger, Mark Catesby and His Adventures of a New World. And he's also the author of A Window to Heaven. Um, he's on a book tour right now through Mississippi. So if you're listening to this and have gotten really excited and want to meet him, you know, you can check out his website at patrickdean.co. That's right. right. Um, to see where he's going to be next. And thank you so much for coming to Columbus and being on the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. All right. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Happy reading. Hi, friends. It's Emily. Thanks for listening. Support Friendly City Books and other independent bookstores like us by shopping online at bookshop.org and libro.fm. Find us on social media at Friendly City Books. And don't forget to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy reading!